Hello, this is Alan Parry and welcome to episode 21 of the Alan Parry podcast. Now, how do I go about introducing this particular show? I've got an interview today with a guy named John Lash, who lives over in Georgia in the United States of America. And John's story and John's journey is really remarkable, as you'll hear. Because at the age of 18, John pulled a pistol on someone and shot them dead and was sent to prison for life for murder. But while in prison, um, John started doing uh, some reading and he has become a really deeply passionate advocate for the ideas and practices of non-violence. And it's something he teaches to this day. And this interview goes on for quite a long time and I don't apologize for that because I really think it will blow your mind in the way that it did mine. The conversation lasts for about an hour and a half and I'm really, really grateful to, to John for the time that he gave to us in order to explore not just his journey, but what he believes in and what he practices in his daily life and how that can apply to you as well. So um, it's a fantastic interview and I really recommend that you put some time, put some time aside in order to uh, give this a good listen. This is John Lash. Okay, well, thanks for coming on to the show. Um, we're going to be talking a lot today, aren't we, about something called nonviolent communication. And yeah. for any of my listeners who want to go back and, and, and dig deeply, I did cover this in some sort of depth in episode 17, so people can go back into that. But I'm interested on your take. Um, if I were to ask you what is nonviolent communication, John, what, what would you say? That's a great question. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I would say that today, I would say that nonviolent communication is a, it's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of hearing what others are saying and, and a way of speaking that lets me kind of get to the heart of what is it? What's going on with us? What's alive in us? What's driving our decisions, our actions? Uh, so that's what, that's what NVC is for me right now. Okay, brilliant. And, you know, I'm, I'm a member of a, an MVC practice group and I'm on a few Facebook forums about it. But I, I'm interested in your story because you've used uh, nonviolent communication in a very, very challenging environment, haven't you? Yes, yes. I was, uh, I was in prison uh, from the time I was 18, which was in 1985, until the very end of 2009 and during my time in prison probably around 2004 I guess I came across NBC and a friend of mine gave me a couple of CDs by Marshall Rosenberg and yeah I listened to the CDs and I had been doing a lot of other things that I think meshed well with with you know I was I was in a good space to hear the message and so when I did, so many things just fell into place for me. And I think one of the main ones was the understanding of universal human needs as a, as, as a way to understand what's driving, what are dri what's driving my choices and the choices of others. And it helped me depersonalize a lot of what was going on. And so I was super excited and I began to... I got a, you know, I got Marshall's book and I got the workbook and I got a few other things. And then 
I started sharing it with some friends of mine. We were in a dormitory and probably a hundred and like 120 or so folks in the dorm. And I started sharing it with these friends just one at a time, two at a time. And we had an opportunity in this particular dorm. There was a room that we could use for classes and we got permission from the administration to start using it. And one of the classes we started teaching was nonviolent communication. And so that, and that, and that was peer teaching, was it, John? It wasn't sort of handed down from on high. It was prisoners teaching other prisoners. Yes, that's right. And the particular dorm we were in was, uh, it was based on a certain class of uh, what they called integrity, an integrity class, which actually that class wasn't very, it, it didn't really amount to much. But they, the, the beautiful thing was that we had this room available to us and it had some chairs and a table and it had a whiteboard and we could shut the door and give just a little bit of quiet from the rest of the dorm, which was an open space. It's always pretty loud. And so when we started doing it, we just went around and asked, hey, are you interested in learning about this? And I think the difference is, you know, the thing in prison is, you know, they often force you to participate in certain classes. And for the most part, they're not particularly interesting or valuable. At least that was my experience of them. But here we had just a group of folks who came together and said, I want to learn to communicate better. I want to learn to, how do I live nonviolently? Or whatever their reason was for coming and sitting in the class. Maybe they were just bored. But we would have uh, 6 to 10, maybe even 12 or 15 people sometimes. And we started, because the book, Marshall's book, has 13 chapters, and we had plenty of time on our hands, we just created a 13-week curriculum based on the chapters in the book. And we would get together once a week and practice for two hours. We'd go over the material, and then we would set up some role plays and things like that. And we would take things that were in the workbook, say maybe a lot of people on the outside that study NVC, maybe it's your wife or your, you know, some the, the dog uh, poops on your lawn or something. <laughs> so we would take those scenarios, and we would change them to things that we had problems with. And we would, we would play with them. We would run through them. We would stop and start again. And... And it just it pretty quickly to me became apparent that there was something in NVC that was really working. Yeah. And what do you mean by it was really working? What was the what was the kind of impact of of these lessons when you say it's working? I think that so I remember I always think of the story of this fellow I knew. His name was Roger, who had a history. He'd probably been in prison. I don't know, eight years or so, he was getting into physical altercations, fist fighting fairly often, getting uh, put in the hole, as they call it, in segregation. And yeah. he he was in our class, so he was a smart guy, and he was a guy that had a kind of a hair trigger. If He thought he was being challenged in any kind of way. And so his temper was pretty short. So... He came, and, and he, he already knew me, and he had, uh, I would say, some respect for me, and we did some other things together, you know, some meditation and stuff like that. So he said, I'm really interested in this. I really want to change the way I'm behaving, the way I'm reacting. And so he sat in our class, I guess, about three or four sessions, and so that's once a week, so maybe a month. And one day, he, after he'd been there three or four times, he came to my room, kind of running up to my room, and he said, John, John something happened you know 
And I said, well, what? What happened, Roger? He said, I got into an argument with somebody, and I didn't hit him. Wow. And, and I said, I was kind of surprised. You know, I said, well, that's terrific. You know, why, did, why didn't you hit him, Roger? What, what was going through your mind? He said, I realized when he was talking to me that everything he was saying was about him and not about me. It was about his needs. And so I wasn't offended. I didn't feel any need to do anything. So I just kept talking to him, and then after a while, things cooled off, and we both walked away. So I have... Yeah, go ahead. You want to ask a question? No, I was going to say, were those sorts of situations quite common? Because I'm, I'm curious. I mean, uh-huh. you, you said, didn't you, that... I mean, I'm, how, how old were you at this point? Were you about 28 when you encountered these CDs? No, no, I was older. Let's see. So I went in in 85, and I yeah. was 18. So <laughs> maybe you can help me with my math. So uh, in 95, I was 28. So I was almost 40 then. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so what, what was going on either for you or for the situation that you were in? Because you described this as um, that you were ready for this. And, and was it a response to the situation around you that there, were, there was violence going on? Or, or was it something internal to you, John, that, was, that you were on some sort of journey and this was just the yeah. right post in the journey? I think it's probably, well, it's both in a way. For me, when when I went to prison, uh, I was a young guy. I was 18, and I went to prison for shooting and, and killing someone. Yeah, and it's quite attached to the to the strategy of violence. I thought that violence was basically a way to get what you wanted. It was a way to be in the world that would give me more power, and I was pretty convinced of it. And so it was after I had been in in prison for a few years that I had a a change, you know, I had to change in myself to say, maybe I should re-examine uh, what's led me here. I should re-examine my thinking. And so, for me, that started a path of looking at a lot of different things and uh, philosophy and psychology and, you know, sociology and religion and, and just whatever I could get my hands on, really. And so... So were you noticing that you were a little bit like Roger when you were in prison as well, that you were kind of, had a bit yeah. of a hair trigger, Yeah. Totally, yeah. I was very much a person who was, you know, I was violent on the inside pretty much all the time, and I was constantly, potentially violent with people around me. And so, you know, I got, I started studying Buddhism, and uh, particularly Zen Buddhism, and I began to practice nonviolence as a as an approach and uh, to life and and i always tell people if you want to study nonviolence, prison is a great place to do it because you get plenty of opportunities to not be violent with people you know yeah and so i did that and 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 one of the things about being a buddhist is uh an, an intentional cultivation of compassion and another is paying attention to my words and the harm that can be caused by my words so I say I was ready for NVC because I was already practicing those things. I was already practicing uh, Zen, and so I would say that's similar in a lot of ways to mindfulness. You know, I, I had a lot of self-awareness around my own thinking patterns, and so when I came across nonviolent communication, uh, you know, I would say, you know, people, you know, the four steps. One, the first one is observation, and so I, I had developed that. The second is emotional awareness, which I had somewhat, but I had particularly worked on developing what I would call a somatic awareness. You know, how do, how do emotions show up in your body as yeah. a physical experience? 
And then the third was universal human needs. And so for me, I always say that was the most revelatory thing about NBC because I that concept was not in me from anywhere. And then the piece around request of kind of putting it all together and specifically asking for what you're wanting and being ready to hear no and listening for what other people were wanting. So, you know, it's like I feel like my mind was in a, in a and my experience was in a good place because I had been kind of going away from physical violence for a long time and, and even verbal violence for a long time. But I still had some thinking that was probably violent in the sense that NBC talks about how judgment is violent and things like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, it was just, I, it was for me, it was like something falling into place. And as soon as I heard the piece around needs particularly, it just clicked in my mind and it all made sense to me. So. So, so when you were when you were kind of um, being violent yourself, what what needs were you trying to satisfy within yourself? That 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 sort of violent strategy at the time was was the one being used. But what were your own kind of? Because um, I notice in myself, you see, there's certain needs in me, yeah. even though we've got universal needs, there are some that keep on cropping up more than others. Yeah, sure. I think for me, when I look back on it. Let me say one, it's kind of hard to remember sometimes how I was so many yeah. years ago. I'm 50 now, so you're talking 32 years when I 32 years ago when I committed with the crime that I committed. So I think really in a lot of ways it boils down to a need for safety, believe it or not, that that I had this I had a sense a deeply flawed strategy really that by being violent, that I was somehow making myself safer, that I was creating a space or a bubble around me where I couldn't be hurt, and, and not just physically, but kind of emotionally, too, and I was a person as a, as a young guy, as a teenager in particular, who was almost completely cut off from any emotional content that I was experiencing. I, was very, I had a very unconscious uh, life of emotions. I'd, all I could sense was I was angry all the time, and I think I didn't know how or I didn't have the experience of creating a lot of deep connections that that I think we get our, at least in some ways, we get our need for safety met through intimate connections with, yeah. with people around us. So, yeah, it's kind of, you know, Marshall talks about uh, tragic expressions. And I think, you know, for me, that's I could really identify with that because my strategy was ultimately just completely flawed i mean I, I i went totally away from i put myself in the most unsafe environment i could through my actions yeah so, yeah so what was the response you know when you first started talking to to people you said you you were talking to um colleagues kind of one-to-one -one. was it yeah. was it a favorable response or did did anyone kind of react against it or how, how did that go down I, you know, of course, people are different. I, I would say my closest circle of friends, we were already... So I had a life sentence, which where I live in Georgia in the United States meant that I, I was eligible for parole, but it wasn't, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that I would be paroled. So most of my friends were in exactly the same condition. They, all, they had life sentences. They had all been in prison for a long time. And we had been working on a... a a group of men who had life sentences, lifers, as we, we called ourselves, who were trying to impact the prison environment. So I was already involved in that. And we were looking at different projects and 
how could we how could we shift the culture so those guys when i talked to them about it for the most part it made sense to them were Some you doing them, that with 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 the authorities blessing or at the, was that what was that an authorities led project or again was this was. a peer project it was yeah it was it was really interesting because in all my years in prison i had never experienced anything like that and you know, you. I even though I would had worked, I'd worked on myself quite a bit, and I had taught meditation, so I, I had a pretty small circle of people that I was influencing, I guess, or that mm. I was seeking influence at least. And so, when the warden at that prison, her name was Rose Williams, and she had been a, a warden of a female prison, a women's prison. Uh, and she had all of her career had been in women's prisons. And so she came to our prison and it was the first time. And she said, I want to do something different. And so she met with me and probably 15 other guys who were, had life sentences. And this is a prison probably of, I can't remember for sure, but 1,200 or so people probably, maybe 1,500 people in the whole prison spread around this compound. And she said, you know, you guys have a lot of experience, you've got a lot of skills, you've been doing time, let's sit down and you guys figure out what you need and what you can do in this environment. And so it was a really an invitation, looking back on it, you know, I didn't have the language at the time, but looking, it was an invitation to collaborate. Yeah. And it was an invitation made to a bunch of people who had basically no experience in collaboration at all. We all were doing okay in our own way but we you know prison doesn't induce collaboration very much it's very it's either competitive or you're you're avoiding problem you know you just you keep your circle small you don't involve yourself in a lot of things so we had to learn to to talk to each other to make decisions together to you know we studied different you know we studied consensus we studied robert's rules you know we had all these different strategies that we were trying out to figure out how do we do this what do we want to do how do we make a decision how do we divide the labor and so her invitation was to us, but all the work was done by the guys, by the prisoners. Yeah. And they were supporting it. And so that was remarkable for me. And then when we, we all moved into a dorm together, the dorm I was talking about earlier, and we had this classroom. And, and I think it, it, that probably doesn't sound very remarkable, but I would say that that's the only space I was ever in in living space where there was a classroom available for us to use basically anytime we wanted to. And that was available for us to create what we wanted to create. And what ended up happening was at first the classroom was only used for these integrity classes. And after a while, we know said the doors locked all the time, except for twice a week. We went, a friend of mine could speak Spanish very well. And I said, his name was Bobby. I said, Bobby, why don't you teach us all how to speak Spanish? you know and we went and we talked to the authorities and they agreed okay you guys can do it if you guys want to do classes that's fine and i don't think that they anticipated what would happen but we ended up going around and asking people if you could teach something if you were interested what would you like to teach and it became a such a rich learning environment i'm, I'm trying i wish i had to we used to it became so many offerings that we had to create a calendar to track what was going on and I wish I had the calendar now, but just off the top of my head, you know, we were doing nonviolent communication, meditation, yoga, Greek and Spanish. Guys were teaching sign language and Braille. Guys were teaching about real estate, business. 
guy, I can't, if I kept thinking, I could probably think of, you know, 10 other things that someone was teaching in there. Well, I'm uh, just, I'm just curious, actually, yeah. going off on a bit of a tangent and not talking about yeah. nonviolent communication at all now. Um, yeah. You know, I have an interest in education, as a lot of people do, and I'm just uh, wondering what advice would you give to to any community really who wanted to set up something which was because it's a basically some sort of non hierarchical um, right. education system, which, as you described, is a rich learning environment. How could right. how could people best replicate that in in the outside world in their own communities? That's a great question, and I'm not. So I'm not an expert on that, but I have a lot of experience at it. I spend a lot of time teaching in prisons. Most of my work, day-to-day work, involves teaching people. And, and from everything from how to read to how to speak English to drafting and heating and air conditioning, any skill that I had developed, I spent a lot of time teaching it to others. And I think that since I got out of prison and I've studied and I've also have a lot of experience now teaching people, especially adults, but I think the same is true for kids that it's this that you have to have the value of tapping into the expertise that already exists. And that if you do that, then you get a richness, you get a you get a wide variety of offerings and you tap into people's energy. Because at least where I live in the United States the kind of traditional educational system, most people kind of turn off and, you know, they turn themselves off. They sit down, you know, I think, uh, what's the, what are they call the banking model? Is that Paulo Freire where they talk about, you know, I'm going to kind of open your brain and insert the information instead yeah. of, hey, let's co-create this liberatory space where we're learning from one another, where we're liberating ourselves from what other, whatever systems we find ourselves in. I think that for me, this, it was such a great example of how rich the community was that I was in, even though this is a community of people that were in prison, you know, and, and you know, I, there's a lot of preconceptions about what that means, but there were people there that knew all kinds of things. We put, there were, I had a friend who was a chemistry teacher, and he would teach us about chemistry and physics, and uh, other, there were people there from different countries around the world, and we set up a series of talks where these men would come and talk about their where they were from and we would ask them questions and I mean it was just it was almost like they were waiting to be asked maybe they didn't know it you know but they were waiting to be asked to contribute something yeah and when the space was available and there were people willing to participate then the contributions just came pouring out of folks they it you know I would say also that what we were tapping into was a deep sense of of meaning, of, of having some purpose in what we were doing. And I think that that, too, if you were looking to replicate something like that in your community, that's what you're trying to do. If I sit people down in rows and, you know, they're looking at me and I'm doing all the talking, I don't know that there's that much learning going on. Yeah. If we get people involved, we invite their participation, then I think the, the potentials are huge. So how how did you kind of deal with? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you got a lot of people there who've got a lot of knowledge, but but do, wouldn't have the sort of teaching experience um, uh-huh. that say a college would demand. How how did you offer support to each other in terms of those sorts of facilitation and teaching skills, or, or even just the confidence to do it? Well, I think that. Well, the confidence came from that there was a core of people who would 
go to a lot of the classes and we would just encourage the person. We would thank them for their time, for their efforts. And I think a lot of what we did, so some people there were experienced at teaching and I think we would learn from them, we would see them teaching and we would take what worked and we would try different things. I think, you know, when we were doing the NVC classes, for instance, some things we tried and I was trying to think of a specific example, but so say, for instance, like me standing up and talking for 20 minutes in a very didactic fashion, I noticed that that didn't work very well. Yeah. But me eliciting some examples from people and then us role-playing, for instance, or, or, or tying the concepts back in through role-play, that seemed to work. So kind of trial and error. And, and I, so I would say we learned, on the, we learned as we were doing it and we were we were constantly adjusting based on the feedback we were getting from, from the classes. And if nobody showed up, I think after a while, the class would just stop. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a very, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about that. I haven't thought about that before. I was at a, I was at a intentional community a couple of years ago and, and I can't remember the process they used, but it was a co-creation process of, what offering people? What offerings people wanted to make? So it was similar to that. That you said, "Hey, I'd like to talk about X," and if that many people were interested, then we would find a time for it and get together and talk about it and see how it went. And if people remained interested, it would continue going. And if they didn't, then it would stop. But there were so many things happening. The, the teaching. The I don't know. It's interesting. That's a great question. I'll keep thinking about it. <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a thing that we have over here called unconferences, which work in a similar way, but just for one day. You know, people yeah. people write down what they'd like to talk about and or what they'd like to facilitate, and uh -huh. you know, people put their names down if they're interested, and and some get done and some don't get done on that basis. But you're you're talking about something much much bigger than that, aren't you? Really, as well. Yeah, sure. Well, for one, we had a lot of time available to us. We had a lot of just opportunity we had a lot of opportunity to practice i probably if we did 13 weeks of nonviolent communication one meeting once a week i probably did that three or four times at least you know with a little bit of break in between plus talking about people all between times getting together with people having smaller meetings practicing empathy Figuring out how we wanted to present the material, and it's like in each time the other thing that happened was that we. So so say in the very first class it was me basically I was doing it yeah but in the second class it was me and another guy that had been in the class and then it was me and two other guys you know and then it was me and two other guys and three or four people that wanted to come back and do it again you know so we were building, looking back at it you know we were building a community we were building sustainability into what into into our efforts. So you you were redoing this every thirteen every thirteen weeks with a little bit of a gap in between. Were the same people yeah. re-enrolling, or were you were you getting some, new people or a mixture? It was a mix. So we would get some people would want to come back, and then we would get some new people. And it was always voluntary. And the population of the dorm was around one hundred and twenty-four people or so, and. There was a little bit of variability there. So when guys, with new people would come in, we would say, hey, we're having this class. Would you like to come? And so, yeah, I, I'm just kind of reflecting that, you know, in the very first group, it was probably guys that mostly knew me and were already my friends. And then 
one of them hung around, and then the second group was a little like that, but a few strangers, and then another guy hang around, hung around. So we were kind of building a core while also reaching new people. So there, there was some kind of balance there uh, of new folks. And, and, and I actually I see the same thing out here now because I teach NBC a lot in my community. And I've done a lot of kind of six-week sessions with folks. And I don't see them again. You know, or at least I don't see them in the context of studying NBC. There's always one or two, though, who are saying, well, what's next? And... What's happened is that in the last couple of years, we've started offering more intense NVC study, more intense practices, and I've reached out to those people. And so this culminated, we're in our second year now of having a year-long study of nonviolent communication with the same group of folks uh, that we would get together for six hours or so every other month and really dive in and, and meet in the weeks in between to practice with one another. So... I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things. The, the first thing I'm curious about, I'll throw them both out so I don't forget. The first thing I'm curious about is, you know, what, what changes you observed within your environment as as these people who were being educated in nonviolent communication were going out and, and trying it out in their actual lives in the way that Roger did. And I'm also curious as well to what extent um, the, the the governor or chief warden, whatever she was called, Rose, to what extent uh-huh. she saw this happening and, and wanted to maybe involve some of her own staff? Did any of that happen? The only so let me I'll answer the second one. I think that the only way the staff got involved was sometimes they would be present while we were offering the teaching, and so I. So besides the class that I've already talked about where we had 13 weeks together, I would go and uh, speak to different groups of guys in the prison or in the lifers group. I was in a mentoring group where we would mentor younger prisoners around, you know, just kind of helping them figure out how to do their time more, more effectively. I would speak and there would often be someone or two people there that were staff members, maybe an officer. And over time, they would come to me and say, you know, I thought about what you said and I tried that with my husband or I tried that with such and such. You know, they would just kind of get me off to myself and mention it to me every now and then. And they actually I saw one of the one of these women uh, last year. I went and visited a prison and spoke there and she was she still remembered quite a bit of the nonviolent communication, but she she had sat through quite a few of the sessions that I'd done uh, kind of one hour sessions. So it was never anything official where we were where we were doing that. And I think the power dynamics of the prison just didn't really permit it. I I think the prisoners could, you know, the staff obviously could benefit from it. You know, one of the few uh, peer-reviewed studies that I'm aware of actually had to do with training staff members at a juvenile prison and measuring the decrease in violence. And and it, it was there. It was present. So I think that, I'm not, and maybe I'm losing the thread of your other question, but but the other thing was I think that a lot of the change that we saw was, I would say, on the individual level. We had a vision of shifting the culture that we were in. So the prison culture in Georgia and probably in most of the United States is 
would be I would describe as violent. It's very you know violent response is very supported in that it is very supported there. It's it's how, how do you mean by it's supported? Are you, are you talking prisoner on prisoner? Are you talking about guard on prisoner? Prisoner on guard? Well, actually, all of those. But, yeah. But so so there's there's the world of prison, which is just the prisoners. You know, which the staff, no matter how present they are, they'll never be a part of that world. You yeah. Know? They can't hear everything. They can't know everything. There's that world. And there's a culture amongst prisoners themselves that doesn't really have that much to do with the guards. It, it, you know, they're, they're part of it in as much as they're an environmental factor, if that makes sense. That does make sense, yeah. And so that culture, I say, supports violence because it has certain values. So it has a value, for instance, that if you were to uh, take a pack of cigarettes from me, that not only would I be justified, I would actually appear weaker if I didn't confront you, potentially at least with my fist, if not with some kind of knife or something, you know, and really harm you yeah. to let people know that, hey, you don't cross that line with me. Yeah. So a lot of reputation building, reputation maintenance that's going on. Displays of violence that are about maintaining order and safety, really, in some ways. So... But that must be quite scary for the for the people that you have and for yourself as well to to not buy into that and to have a different way of dealing with it because like you just said that could be perceived as weakness. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, I remember when I first went to prison, I first went to prison and some guy threatened me. I mean, literally the first day I was there, some guy threatened me. I don't remember exactly what he said now, but and there was another guy who came up to me, and he offered me a, a, a homemade knife, what we call a shank. Yeah. And he said, here. And I'm like, why, why are you giving me this? And he said, well, you need, to, you need to stab that guy or something. You need to be ready. I can't remember exactly what he said. But I was like, well, why? What do you mean? You know, I think, yeah, he threatened me, but I don't really think he's going to do anything about it. And, you know, immediately I began experiencing that pressure that other people wanted me to commit a violent act. And even though I was a person who was violent, I was also a person who was, I was, I've always been very skeptical of hierarchy. I've been, I'm very skeptical of, I all, I question everything. It drives my wife crazy. You know? <laughs> I, I question all assumptions. I don't buy into patterns. I try not to, you know. And so I said, well, why, why would I do that? That doesn't make sense to me. And they're like, well. You'll see, and, and, and in fact, nothing happened with that guy. And so I kind of went in from the beginning thinking, hey, I'm not going to buy into this. I'm not going to buy it. If I need to be violent, I will, but I'm not going to buy into this culture that you know kind of preemptively has me be violent. So I, I started from that place. And then as I worked in nonviolence, what I learned was that it's funny because I was, as a teenager, as a, you know, growing up, I was a terrible communicator. And I learned, because I was trying to move through that world nonviolently, I really learned how to communicate with people. And I learned a balance of communication that let me, you know, keep things calm with them or at least de-escalate things while also not giving them the impression that they could just run over me. And somehow I worked my way to balancing that better and better and better the more time I did. Which is kind of like NVC, if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, to me, that you know, 
that the two parts of NVC are empathic listening and honest expression. I think I was doing those things already in my own way before I heard about NVC because if you only give empathy and you don't give expression, then people can run over you. So, so what what was happening as a result of the MVC classes? Because I mm-hmm. I hear that you're you were on a, a journey that would naturally lead you to being very open to MVC anyway. But I'm yeah. and I know that initially as well you had people on on the Lifers project, um, and yeah. so I'm guessing these guys were quite reflective at that point anyway. But um. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, you're still inviting people, aren't you? To 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 drop a strategy which feels the most safe strategy um by by no longer using violence when someone comes and steals your cigarettes for instance so how were people dealing with first of all that that chasm that they had to jump over but yeah. also to those kind of situations in the future how how were they worked on non-violently and still ensure that you didn't then become a target right that's a great question and i think that there's a pretty complicated response to that. And for me, if, if you think about that NVC, I, I view NVC kind of exists on three levels. So the first level is how do I think within myself? What thought patterns do I have going on that contribute to violence or nonviolence? The second is my level of interaction with, I would I think of my kind of my immediate folks that I'm around. How am I talking to people? How am I hearing people? And the third level is understanding what systems I'm embedded in, how those systems are supporting violence. Mm. And, and so I think that that this third layer often gets ignored, but a lot of what was going on in the prison, I would say, is coming. it, it was coming from the systems that we found ourselves embedded in, this, this lack of questioning. And, and, you know, and, of course, these three things are totally interconnected with one another. But take, for instance, that a guy could... Uh, so a common problem in the prison was that you had a medical problem and you couldn't get anyone to pay attention to it, right? You would go to the doctor or the nurse or even the officer and try to go to see the nurse, and they were they were skeptical. They didn't. They thought you were malingering in some way or something. You know, yeah. they would put you off. It was an inconvenience to them, and so a you know a pretty common response to that would be to blow up in some way, to cuss the guy out, to whatever you know you'd be doing something that ultimately probably get you in trouble and you also wouldn't get what you wanted which was somebody paying attention to your medical issue and so we might take a situation like that and break it down in our class and say well what do we do you know you're you've you're sick you you want to go see the doctor you want to go to sick call how could you talk to the officer you know how could you hear so it was about understanding our power in the way that we were communicating uh, for things like that. So maybe it wouldn't be that he would attack the guard physically, but that he would curse at the guard or speak to the guard in some way that would create problems later on. So that's one thing. The other is, say there was a confrontation around uh, the tele- The television was famously a source of conflict in, in the dorm, in the prisons in general. And so there's 124 people, there's two televisions in two different rooms, and you can guess, you know, like, there's... There's a lot of conflict about it. So it could be, how do we have those conversations? How do we hear the needs that are present in the other? And we would role play those. We would role play trying to find those solutions. And we also, I wouldn't, we weren't really mediating, but we were kind of, uh, we were kind of doing shuttle diplomacy sometimes. As the more and more that we were 
getting into nonviolent communication. Into the and I was also, and I should mention, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I was beginning to study restorative justice at the same time and try to understand the ideas of restorative justice. And so for me, those two things are very interconnected with one another now. Yeah, but, I wanted to come on to the restorative justice because I wanted yeah. to. I mean, I'll do that in a moment, actually, because I'm, I'm curious about the two examples that you've given. In terms yeah. of the first one, where because um, I've heard stories from British prisons as well, uh, from mm-hmm. people who, who I know have, who've been in prison, and they've that thing I think is must be pretty universal, where they found it very difficult to get any kind of um, any understanding of, of health issues. So how how rather than cursing the guy out, how does that play out in 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 that environment in future using the tools of nonviolent communication? So you would listen for, you might listen for the guards. What are the guards' needs? Why is he saying no? You know, the thing in NBC where they say, what's the yes behind the no, for instance? Uh, The fact is, there's one person who is responsible for 124 people. They have a radio. The radio is constantly going off. There's a phone that's ringing all the time. For them to send someone to see the nurse outside of a certain set of parameters means radio calls, phone calls, it means them writing something, a pass for you to take with you, it means them letting you out of the dorm in a certain, there's just a lot of detail to it. Mm. And so they have all these people coming at them at once, they have all this stuff going on. So it could be as simple as approaching them and acknowledging what their reality is, you know. Hey, I can see things are really busy right now, you know. Just something as simple as that. You know, and we weren't coming and giving them the one, two, three, four of NVC, but we were saying, what needs do you think are alive? How do you think, what, what's their emotional state? So it's kind of, rehu- you know, just like the system of, of guards and, you know, the correctional system dehumanizes prisoners. And that's totally true. And prisoners, in turn, can dehumanize the people that are in the in the hierarchy, in the, the authorities. So it's about kind of breaking that down, saying, look, that's a human being. What do you think's going on with them? Not it didn't have to be super deep, you know, like why have they chosen this kind of work or anything. It'd just be what would it be like to be in that situation? Yeah. So And that know, makes this, that makes it easier for you to be heard by them yeah. in return. Plus there's so much communication that goes on between us that has to do with how we're holding the other person. So I think that's a lot of what people call nonverbal, you know, so I could be saying the right words, but there might be a way I'm looking at you or a tone of voice or something that comes across. And so I think that even though we didn't actively work on those things, by generating some sense of empathy for that person, then our body language, our tone, and all those things were communicating something quite different. And just a little bit of empathy could get you heard. You know, I mean, just a little bit. It, you would, they didn't need a full-on empathy session just saying, hey, I know that, I know you're really busy right now. It seems like things, there's a lot of things going on. They might say, yeah, blah, blah, you know, the lieutenant's coming and, you know, whatever. They, they'll talk to you a little bit. Yeah. Man, must be pretty frustrating. Don't you ever get tired of this? You know, whatever. We would just chat them a little bit and say, I hear, you know, I know you got a lot going on. I'm really feeling my stomach's bothering me. Whatever my problem is, and I would... I'm wanting to try to get over to the nurse. Do you think you could help me with that? You know, something like that. So just uh, creating a little bit of connection can go a long way, which, of course, that works anywhere. But in that situation, it was one of the few ways that we had to uh, get what we wanted. You know, I mean, that's that's it. They had all of the 
power. They had the keys to the door. You know, they had the radio and all that kind of stuff. So it had to be that we. It, it was a strategy to let them see us as a human being too. And yeah. how did we? We saw them as human beings, as much as we could. So. I, I like the sense? yeah it does, and I like the other example as well because the, the one with the TV because you've described a situation where you've got 120 odd people and you've got two TVs. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that interests me about nonviolent communication, you see, is that what Marshall Rosenberg used to say is that once you actually get everybody's needs on the table, we have the creativity to get all of those needs met. And yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but at the same time, sometimes I find myself pondering about those yeah. situations where a win-win just doesn't seem possible. And this is uh -huh. a great example of that, where you've got 120 guys and two TVs. Yeah. How, how does one use nonviolent communication in situations where it does look, from the outset at least, that it's one person's needs winning or another? I mean, I think, you, for me at least that like i understand what you were saying about if we could get all our needs out but i think the other thing we have to do we have to extend the time period we have to extend the time in which we're willing to work so that it might be that today i might not watch that movie i wanted to watch but maybe next week or maybe tomorrow i'll get a chance to watch something that i want that's one piece right so Obviously, if there's if there's two TVs and 124 people, there's more than two things that want to be watched, right? Like there's there's 50 things that want to be watched. So we would sometimes people would vote, or we would we worked more on the agreements of how we made those decisions, right? So and the other thing was to consider what need what need am I meeting by watching television? Maybe I need some news. Maybe I need some entertainment. Maybe I'm whatever. And are there other ways that we might meet that need? So we were trying to open up the potential strategies available to us to meet our needs. That's uh, a good point, yeah. Yeah, I so that's one. And then just the idea of time. I, I always think, like, let's stretch it out over weeks and months. How are we going to do this thing together? Let's have the conversation about how we're going to do this thing together because we don't want to have a conflict every day or once a week. Let's work on that. And so that, to me, was the way that we started getting our needs met. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed in me when I'm trying to practice NVC, I mean, it's a big part of my life now, but I do notice that I kind of um, fall over the more, the more intimate the situation is, if you know what I mean, because the yeah. stakes are higher. And oh. so I'm, I'm wondering what your process is where something really does hurt. And whereas in the past you've described that as a younger man you were you were prone to responding with violence because that that met your or you felt that met your need for safety what's your actual uh, process now when because we all get that red mist don't we i mean i'm guessing you still get yeah. that kind of anger yeah. in in life from time to time what's your process what what's the if we were to slow that down and look at it what does it look like well i think for me so the other part of my life that's was really important and I think helped me with with learning NVC was the practice of Zen of meditation in particular and kind of just knowing myself and knowing my own experience and so one of the things that I've learned uh, through the practice of NVC is self-empathy which you know Marshall talks about quite a bit it's like you know if you remember the thing about the difficult the four ways to hear a difficult message you know 
and in two of those ways that fall with MVC. One is to have empathy for the other person, and the other is to have empathy for myself. You know, and so I think that if I find myself overwhelmed, I've learned through habit. And I'm not saying I never give into it. I'm not saying I never communicate in a violent way. I do. Just yeah. ask my wife. You should have her on next time, and she can tell you. So you're, you're talking that. about judgment words and stuff like that comes out. Yeah, things and, like that. Yeah. yeah, being angry, you know, or speaking with a in an angry way. Yeah. I think that my practice has been to, when I notice that coming up in me, to pause, to be willing to put it on the shelf, and in some ways, like what I was describing to you is. One thing that I've, so my most intimate relationship is with my wife. You know, she's the person that, you know, I feel closest to and the person yeah. that can trigger me the most and yeah. probably vice versa. Uh, and so one thing that we've spent some time doing, we actually met at an NVC retreat, so that's okay. nice that we share this, <laughs> that we have talked about how do, when we have our conflicts, what do we want to do? What do we want to bring to it? What do we want to remind ourselves of? Let's remind ourselves of what are our intentions for one another. Let's try not to fall into these patterns of conflict. Let's try to slow the conflict down. We've also studied with Dominic Barter, studied restorative circles. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but... I'm not thing, actually, no. Dominic Barter, did you say? Yes. Uh, one thing that Dom says is that this, it's too important to rush. Or something like that. You know, it's too, it's not important, it's not the word to use, but it's too vital to rush, something like that. So, yes, when the intensity starts going up, we're moved to speak with a lot of energy, we're moved to act very rapidly, I think, because our needs are being triggered very strongly. Yeah. Yet, kind of counterintuitively, maybe, or counter our experience at least, is. What, what we could do that might serve us better is to actually slow down. And so what I do when I find myself in that state, as soon as I catch it, is I pause. I, I pause. I have whatever. I have a signal I can give my wife. I say, you know, I need to just, I'm going to go be by myself for a little while. Or I just want to put this conversation on the shelf until tomorrow or until I get back from work or whatever. And I try to go within myself. I try to understand what emotion am I experiencing right now? And this doesn't, it's not necessarily intellectual practice. It's a very physical practice. What's it like to be me right now? I'm feeling this tightness in my stomach. I'm feeling my heart is beating fast. And just noticing those things, noticing myself, grounding myself back into my own experience, which I think is a huge part of what NBC is about, like being present to myself. And that lets me slow down these parts of my brain perhaps or these old patterns that I have that are that are hijacking my experience right now. We're, we're getting hijacked because of things that have happened to us before. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that that's the strategies that I try to use now. And I try to have a regular practice of mindfulness. I try to do things that help me stay balanced in my life. I practice meditation and, and I've let that slip since I got out but I've, I've tried to do it more lately. I've uh, just whatever it is that kind of regulates us helps us stay self-regulated. Maybe it's a better way to say it. Yeah, because he I've I've heard quite a few people talking about their own meditation practice, and I kind uh -huh. of I flirt with it and then and then stop and then try and have another go. But people talk yeah. that it makes one less reactive. Um, so yeah. that would really help in the type of thing that you're talking about. You know, there's this. I read one of the books that really influenced me was uh, Victor Frankl's uh, "Man's Search for Meaning." I read that I recently, funnily enough, within the last say six months. I read that. It was terrific. So you know, someone gave it to me. I was in my early twenties, and 
the line that's one of the lines that really stuck with me was where he talks about our how our power comes in that space between stimulus and response. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's such a that's such a primary observation of what it's like to be a human being that you know quite often the space between stimulus and response for us is very very small so small that we don't even notice it so you say something to me and the next thing you know i'm you know cussing you out yeah or you're slamming the door or whatever or you're pulling out a pistol and shooting somebody but in fact that space can be grown and that's uh, to me that's a big part of what it my work in, in like how do I want to be as a human being is to grow that space. So the stimulus is always present. There's always things that we don't enjoy, that we don't like. The world has got all kind of stuff going on that, that I don't like. Yet here's the stimulus. I'm trying to lengthen that time space, you know, between that and what I'm going to do next. And that means I've got more and more choice. My choice gets greater and greater. So my access to options, to strategies, as we say in NBC, goes up and i can consider them i just can just have more time to do it yeah so I that's, think I'm that's really helpful i think yeah yeah I, I think the other thing i find helpful when listening to your talk is when you're talking about that physical response because when i first started doing non-violent in fact still now actually john when i'm doing non-violent communication now i find it very difficult to be literate about my own feelings and needs yeah and yeah. listening to you talk there it does often help me when I, rather than trying to search for a word, what am I feeling? Because I don't always know. By putting my attention on my body in the way that you've described, you know, my chest is tight or my stomach's got butterflies in or my jaw is right. clenched or whatever, that's a right. nice first step to getting close to where where I am. Yes, I've found that to be very true. Uh, I've gone back and forth on just the idea of emotional literacy that's presented in the work of nonviolent communication. I mean, I do think there's a lot of value to it. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed er, uh, in communicating with my wife was pretty early on, and we've been together about five years now, that we, uh, one time we were having a conflict, and one of us, I forget which one, was using the word furious. And somewhere along the way in this conflict, I think I asked her, when you say furious, I'm curious, like, in a 1 to 10 of being angry, what does that mean? And she said, oh, that's a 5. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Because I've been talking to you as if it were a 7. And that was I, really changing our communication. Well, I'd have, so, I'd have read that as a 10. Totally, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. So it's just, and so I've played around with that, you know, the idea that maybe there's just a few emotions you know maybe there's five or six kind of baseline emotions or states of affect that have varying levels of intensity and not even getting into the fact that they can all be mixed together right that i could be angry and happy you know like those things that can occur very rapidly so for me the awareness of the body is it's super important i don't care so much that that i get that one specific word although that word can help sometimes right and, and cards, I don't know if you ever played with, you know, there's all these card sets that have to do with NBC, and they're pretty interesting. Sometimes I've, I've, seen, not, I've not seen them at all, actually. Oh, well, you should. I reckon there's one set called the Grok cards, G-R-O-K, that, that have feelings and needs. And then there's another set, it's called the Deck of Needs. It's by a guy named Hugo Royel. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his last name right. That 
have just the needs on them, but they're super interesting. I use them all the time in teaching NVC and sharing NVC with folks that, because there's something about the physicality of it that's different than a list. I can yeah. hold this card in my hand and see, I can pick it up and hold it and I say, no, that's not it. And there's a somatic element to that. You know, you could, you could pick up the card that said love or whatever, and I could say, is that, do you want to hold that one right now or this other one? And you would, there was something in, there's some wisdom in your body that would let one of them go and hold the other. I don't yeah. know. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And in fact, I'll, I'll look for those and I'll put them in the show notes so people can oh, access them. Great. I'll send you the, the info on Hugo too because those cards have been fabulous. I, have, I, I teach at the jail now sometimes. And when I do, people will say, uh, Oh, can I take this card back with me? Like, I want to take this card back to the cell with me because yeah. it means so much to me just to hold it in my hands that it says safety or family or whatever, you know. <clears throat> it's amazing. And it's so different than just looking at a list or reading. And I think there's something about the ability to manipulate it as an external object. So, anyway, fascinating to me. The kind of physicality, right? Yeah, because no, it, it's it, true. It's, if I think about it, right, like any attempt to describe emotion... I mean, we could do it in a very reductive fashion, right, of saying, oh, these neurons are firing or these hormones are being released. But as a human experience, to put a word on this state, it's just an approximation, you know. And it's the same thing with needs. You know, if I say, oh, you have a need for love, in a way that makes sense. And we could be reductionist about it. We could be very linear or analytical about it. But at the same time, to have the experience of a human being needing love, there's something in us that understands what that experience is like. And yeah. it's so far beyond the ability to kind of put it into words or communicate. I mean, right, that's why people write books and poetry and write songs and things, right? I mean, it's it's something about our experience that is just, that's vital and alive in the moment. And so all of these things, NVC really in general is, it's an attempt, it's a model of trying to understand these experiences, but they're so far beyond it that I think I don't want to get caught up in the mechanics of NVC necessarily, right? That could actually take me away from being connected to the person that's in front of me. Yeah, I've noticed that too, actually. Sometimes I've, I've been having a, a conversation with someone who's been using NVC um, to yeah. try and empathize with me, and it doesn't feel empathic. It feels as though they're intellectualizing it and they're saying the right words, but it doesn't really yeah. feel like that they're emotionally present with me. And then that so, often, it, it actually feels disconnecting when that happens. If you think about Marshall, right, and at least my take on Marshall, and, you know, you say, for instance, he writes in the book about Martin Buber, and he writes about this quality of presence that Buber talks about. Or he writes about Carl Rogers or whatever. Yeah. So... I think NVC coming from Marshall was descriptive. It wasn't prescriptive in the sense that Marshall made a list of what human beings should do in so much as he looked in the world and he saw people that were living in a way that he thought was valuable. And so he went about describing that way of being. So for me, that you could someone is manifesting what we're calling NVC and they've never heard of it, right? Yeah. Like it existed Whatever this thing is, it existed before Marshall ever wrote a word down. It's it's a part of us as being human beings, really. I mean, I think, and I'm not as deeply studied in it as some people, 
But if I look at Marshall's descriptions of the evolution of his understanding of NVC, and he traces systems of domination and control back to the advent of agriculture, right? Like, that's a pretty amazing statement to me, that, you know, before that, if, and, and I personally, I believe in evolution, I would say that if modern humans have existed, you know, 100, 200,000 years on the planet, yeah, got 10 or 12,000 years of agriculture and what I would call really deeply entrenched hierarchical systems, right? Where, where our value as human beings is externalized, where our locus of control is externalized. But in fact, that means you know, I've got 12,000 years of that, and then I've got 100 plus thousand years of humans living in a more egalitarian way, where they couldn't afford to dominate and control each other because people would just leave, you yeah. know, or they, they, they needed to collaborate. So for me, a lot of what NBC is about is really uncovering what's already present in us and detraining or untraining ourselves from these things that have been imposed from the outside, these ways of looking at the world. I, I take a lot of hope from that because I don't think you don't have to learn how to have empathy. You just kind of unlearn the things that are getting in the way of you having empathy. It's a human quality that we already have. Yeah, it's funny, really, because a friend of mine who's actually been on the show as well, um, often, well, what, what he taught me and what I've, I've really taken from some of the things he said, he's a sociology lecturer, and yeah. he points out how, um, well, he points out how the media will often um, go big on a particular thing where they're wanting you to dislike people. And yeah. he pointed out to me that they have to do that because it's not naturally within us. So, you know, yeah. you, you don't have front page headline splashes demanding that you love your child, for instance, because most people do. Um, right. But you will have a front page splash telling me to hate some foreigner or whatever or a, a, a welfare claimant. And he was pointing out to me that whenever you see somebody doing that level of work, it's kind of a training for us to go against right. our, our, our natures, really. That's right. That's it. Speaking of systems, actually, I, I want to get to the restorative um, justice stuff because yeah. you, you spent a, a while inside the prison system. So I wanted to get your opinion of the prison system, um, whether you think it's a good system or not, what, what you think its effects are and what you think might be an alternative. Because I'm guessing from what you're saying that you're, you're thinking that there might be a better way. <laughs> <laughs> I could say that the prison system in, in the United States, in my experience, is a total failure. So, you know, I don't think it's accomplishing anything that it sets out, you know, purportedly to do. Uh, so what's it a failure at? Well, so if we think about the theory of punishment, that that if I were to... So so here's... Let me say, I'm sorry, I'm thinking, thinking on my feet a little bit, but... That's okay. The, so one way that we could look at the punitive system, which I think the you know the prison system is is the you know almost the ultimate expression other than the death penalty you know in the United States of of a punitive mindset or a punitive systems that people have in place, right? Yeah. So the way the logic of the punitive system can be viewed as a set of questions. So the first question is, what rule or law or whatever you want to call it has been broken? The second question is, who's to blame? You know, and the third question is, what consequence do we then want to employ against that person with the understanding that employing that consequence can shift the behavior in a way that we want to see it shift or that it can create balance or justice or whatever outcome we're looking for. Right. 
I mean, ultimately, I think Marshall said in his book something like, you know, violence can work for that, but we have to consider what are the reasons that we want the person to have when they change their behavior. If their only reason is to avoid being hurt, then that's not very sustainable. It's basically as sustainable as much as I'm able to continue to inflict harm on you, which means you have to watch me all the time, things like that. Yeah. So a kind of consequence of, of a punitive system, which we can see all around us, is that if if we're at step one, you know, some rule has been broken, we're trying to figure out who did it, and the third part is basically how are you going to hurt me so that I'll stop doing that thing, is that I will first deny. I'll deny that I did it, if I can, right, if yeah. I can get away. And if I can't get away with denying it, what I'll do is I'll try to mitigate it. You know, I'll say, yeah, and think about little kids, you know, did you do that? Yes, but, right? They've got a reason, you know, why they did it. And I'm trying to play on your mercy in some way so that you'll punish me less or not punish me at all. So what we really want, I believe anyway, as human beings, we want people to take responsibility for themselves. We want people to, if they harm us, to say, I'm sorry I did that, and here's what was going on, and here's what I want to do to make it better, or whatever, something like that. But yet the system, the punitive system, is taking me further and further away from taking self-responsibility. And I don't know much about the way your legal system works, but I think it's pretty similar to ours in that yeah. a court setting is very, it's it's adversarial. That's it's right. adversarial. And so it it. Me coming forward with self-responsibility and empathy for the person I'm harmed is actually, that's not how you engage in an adversarial setting, right? Like, it's it's ill-advised if I'm in an adversarial setting to do that. So, people get paid a lot of money to make me look less responsible than I really am. So, you take that, you know, and then you find, here we are, we're sitting in prison. Another thing about prison is that you know, I was in prison for murder, and you might be in prison for shoplifting in the United States. You know, if you shoplift enough, you could go to prison for yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and here we are having exactly the same experience. Now, now my experience will be longer than yours, but in general, what's going on with us is exactly the same. So there's no, there's not even a sense of proportionality other than time, right? And so I have taken the person away from their. Uh, intimate relations i've taken the person away from their social network in some way whatever what supports they had available to them i've put them into an environment that's hyper violent that's that's either intentionally mistreating them or that's ignoring their needs just because the needs are so overwhelming and there's not enough resource to deal with it and then i'm expecting somehow that when i do let them go that they're going to be more functional than they were before they went in most of the time, at least in my experience, most people that go to prison in the United States, they leave the prison worse than they did than they got there. They're, they're more damaged, more traumatized, they're more angry. They've probably learned to do some things that you probably wish they hadn't have learned to do. And there's a small group of people who, for some reason, they, they do actually get better. They do look at their life and they say, oh... I want things to be different, but, you know, people used to say, well, hey, you're a great example of how the prison system's actually working, <laughs> you know, which is funny, but to me, I'm saying, 
I was changed in spite of my time in prison, not because of my time in prison. I, it was despite everything that was going I could easily see how I could have gone down a different road. And most people are going down a different road. And it's a road that, that I don't want people to go down. I want you, you know, I always, the, what we used to talk about in prison when we would evaluate one another was, would I want that person living next door to my family? You know, most people that are in prison right now, because I know what people are experiencing, I'm not particularly wanting them living in my family, living next door to my family, because I'm thinking they're, they're going to be pretty angry. Yeah. They're going to be pretty traumatized when they leave that environment. There's a book. There's a book called Restorative Justice, the little book of restorative justice for people in prison. It's by a woman named Barb Toes. I'm not sure I'm saying her last name right. But but she talks about what would a restorative environment look like. Now, the idea of prison is so it's so entranced, at least in the United States, as to as to what that experience is, but I don't deny that there are times when I would I would use force to segregate people away from the general community, right? Like, I think that's totally logical. Sometimes people are doing things that are dangerous. Yeah. We need to do something. They're dangerous to themselves and they're dangerous to the rest of us. Then we need to do something about that. But, but where I want to see the difference is, where do I want them to go? Because if I'm not wedded myself to this punitive model of justice, then... I'm not okay with the fact that they're going and experiencing all these terrible things while they're away. I want them to go to a place that actually gets them some of what they need, that helps them move closer to self-responsibility, that helps them become more self-reliant. And I don't believe that punishment is going to get me there. So describe for us what, because a lot of people will be encountering restorative justice quite new when they listen to this. Describe what that yeah. would actually look like if we moved well, away from the punitive prison system and had restorative justice to take its place so you remember i said there were these three questions that had to do with the, the logic of a punitive approach right or retributive approach yeah so there's another way and and i i tell you, i'm basically taking these ideas from a man named howard zare who they call in the united states at least they call him the grandfather of restorative justice but he writes the questions and i'm probably not saying exactly right but the first question in a restorative system would be who has been harmed now think about the difference in the question who has been harmed and what rule has been broken, right? Yeah. So what comes from that is instead of having an institution centered in the process, I have a person or more than one person centered in the process. Who's been harmed here? The second question might be something like what obligations have arisen because of this harm, right? So that lets me, if I'm the one who did the harm, I've got some obligations growing out of that. Maybe you're a social worker or a teacher or something. You might have some obligations growing out of that harm. Maybe their family, whatever. There's, there's all. We're already drawing in a network of people to support. And then the third question might be, how do we talk about what's happened to repair the damage and to go forward in a way that makes it less likely to happen? And so that, as that to me at least causes me to ask who needs to be in the circle who needs to be present for this conversation to happen a punitive process at least the ones that i've experienced with it doesn't really make space for that so i could give an example if you want yeah please the, do yeah so we do some work here in schools and with the juvenile court and so 
say for instance a kid gets a complaint against we had these kids who were throwing rocks and they hit a fire truck with a rock they were at the you know the trucks were driving by and they were throwing stones and so the cops arrested these kids and they didn't take them to jail but they took them home and they filed a complaint a juvenile complaint in the juvenile court against these kids but uh, we have this program which is diversionary so if i would think in the traditional system they would go in front of the judge they were guilty of a certain crime and then a certain sentence would be imposed on them. Maybe they would be put on probation or they would have to attend a class or something like that with the idea that that would alter their behavior. And what we did instead was we got together and we talked to their mom. They were brothers. Uh, actually, there were four kids. I'm, I'm just remembering this happened a few years ago. So we talked to the parents of the kids. So there were two brothers and then two other kids. We talked to the firemen who were present. One of them was driving the truck when the rock hit. And then we talked to some people at the school that interacted with these kids. And so instead of these kids going in front of the judge, they came and they sat with us around a table. And we had these firemen present. And we just started asking. Basically, we're asking some questions, you know. How is everybody doing right now about what's going on? What is it that you were looking for when you guys were doing that, when you decided to throw those rocks? What was it like for these firemen when that happened? We let the firemen talk about that experience. And what do we want to do next? And so what happened was while the fireman was describing, you see, I was driving down the road, we were going on a call, and this rock hit the truck, and it scared me, and I'm driving this truck that weighed, it was a tanker truck, and I forget, you know, however many tons it weighs, he said I was really scared that I might have an accident. And these kids started crying, you know, not that we want them to cry necessarily, yeah. but but they were kind of recognizing the potential harm that could have happened, and they were began to apologize. You know, already they were kind of moving into what what would happen next, and they lived right down the street from this fire station, and so they got together and the, they said, "Oh, we're going to go and visit the firemen." You know, it's it's like they started building their relationship with these people who were. They're vital, right? Like, we really need firemen. You know, they're important yeah. for our community. And these kids began to strengthen their relationship. So their mom took them down to the station. And I haven't talked to them in a while, but it's... And that's a pretty small example, right? But I think that, to me at least, I, I hope it's kind of capturing what we're trying to do. It's who's at the table? How do we make these decisions together? It's I think of it as how are we taking... How are we taking ownership of our conflicts with one another? You know, how are we taking ownership of this harm that's happening in our community? In some ways, I've outsourced that, and and I don't. Uh, I'm sure there's good reasons why people have done that, say for fairness and impartiality, and I think those things are important. But what's happened is that these systems have become so entrenched that the outcomes aren't very good. The outcomes aren't giving us what we want. So my belief is that. These restorative approaches are creating the conditions where people are safe enough to talk about what's really going on. They don't have to mitigate. They don't have to deny. We can really get to it. And, and, and what can emerge in that circumstance is empathy. The, uh, you know, in NVC, we say empathy is a, a respectful understanding of another person's experience, that these kids began to have an understanding of what that experience was like. The fireman wasn't just some... A distant 
object to them. They became real people. And so that is, I have more faith that that is, the next time that kid has a chance to throw a rock, that that's going to get in, that's just sitting in his heart now, and he's going to think, no, I'm not going to do that, than the fact that we punished him by putting him on probation for six months or something. I've got more trust in, in the restorative outcome as being lasting than the punitive outcome. That's a, that's a really interesting example, and I can I can see exactly what you're saying. I'm I'm going to be a mouthpiece for some listeners who yeah. might be feeling skeptical, who might who might actually hear what you're saying there and and, and be nodding, but might sure. be skeptical when the crime is maybe more serious and the wrong that's been the harm that's been done, should I say, is is more lasting. For instance, so let's say I were to go on a night out, for instance, and while huh. on a night out, I might beat somebody senseless so that they're really ill. There might be a, a I'm, I'm thinking that people listening might think, but they have a hankering for justice, which yeah. leads them into retribution. And yeah. what would you say to people who, who think, well, you know, come on, you've just done, you've just done a serious harm to someone. I don't, do you just go out and do, do you have a meeting now with everyone and then just go out, go out on the street and nothing has happened to you? So I think people, a lot of people will have a hankering for, some sort of retributive justice, and I wonder what you'd say in that sort of circumstance. Well, I would say first that I understand that. I understand that desire for us to have. It, it's a it's an attempt to equalize what's going on, you know. Yeah. So I've got a lot. Of, I've got to understand. I mean, I still that still resides within me. It's not that I've rid myself of this way of thinking entirely. Uh, I've just had the experience of knowing that doing it in another way, I feel more satisfied. I feel more self-connected. I feel like things are better than they were otherwise. So there's two things I want to say. One is a lot of times people's primary concern is with safety, right? They're thinking yeah. if nothing happens to you, then you'll just keep on doing it, right? Yeah. You basically got away with it and nothing's happened, so... Things seem off to us. There doesn't seem to be any fairness or justice, right? But if you can imagine actually feeling the emotions of sitting and being in a circle or whatever pro process you're using with someone that you've harmed and being present to their pain, that's something that actually doesn't happen in a court setting, right? Uh, actually, here, I don't know how it is there, but here there's almost a throwaway line in, in any journalism about serious crime is that uh, the defendant showed no emotion yeah for instance, right yeah that's a common uh, thing in in reports here too so so part of us would say oh that's because they're just some kind of emotionless bastard you know but actually what's going on is that they are disconnected they're in this adversarial situation where there's no potential for them to show emotion if they were to show emotion it could be it could be harmful to them so I've had people sit in front of, you know, people that they've harmed. Probably the most serious case that I've personally facilitated a conversation around was a home home invasion or burglary uh, of, an, of a house, an occupied house, where the woman who's, uh, the guy came upon her in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, really scared her, frightened her, uh, and... When I facilitated this conversation, and, and he was in jail, it's, it's not that nothing happened to him, but yeah. you know, what ended up, she told me that, that, she said, I think that if this guy were to, he, the guy was about 50, she said, if he goes to 
if he goes to court, he's going to probably be in prison 10 or 15 years because he had a record from when he was a teenager. And she said, I don't think that's right. You know, I just, I want him to be, I just want him to, I want to know he's not going to do this again. And I want him to get the help that he needs. The guy was on drugs. And mm -hmm. so we go in, first we had a meeting with the solicitor and with the, with the prosecutor and with the police and with the guy's attorney and the woman whose home had been burglarized. And we sit and talk to them for a while. And then it ended up that the, the prosecutor decided, because the woman wanted, that he would try to help this guy get into a drug treatment program while he was incarcerated. We then go and we talk to the guy. And when we walked in, he's looking at her, he's talking to her, and he just broke down and started crying. I mean, he was full of this kind of self-recrimination, you know, and that, I mean, I'm not saying it's that way for everyone, yeah. but I think that the, actually the more serious the crime is, the more serious the harm is, actually the more energy, the more potential that some kind of, that a restorative process could create a change, could create a transformation. And I don't think either, and I mentioned earlier, that I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea that people sometimes need to be set aside, set into a safe place, for their safety and ours. And they need to be getting the help. So if we think in terms of the community, right, if I've got someone who's willing to go out and beat someone, like you said, that doesn't occur in a vacuum. That occurs because of whatever, their social condition, trauma they've experienced. There's some reason. There's always a reason, right? I don't mean as an excuse. I mean there's a reason yeah. why things Then what do they need to have so that they are going to be able to cope in a different way. So they're not going to make that decision again. So maybe they need a kind of therapy, right? Maybe they need some spiritual process. I don't know. But I want them to be in a place where they can get that. And where is when they're safe, when we think that they're safe, then they can come back and be in our community again. I don't want them to be away any longer than they need to be for their safety and ours. So, I'm guessing as well that what uh -huh. I mean, while we each have a criminal justice system that you know effectively imprisons all sorts of people for all sorts of things which are not dangerous, um, oh, yeah. it oh. makes it much much harder to provide a, a place where people do get the resources because you just have overload of people in the system. Yeah, I mean the whole. At least, I don't know how it is there, but the whole system in the United States is overwhelmed, under resourced, and. The fact is that they're not producing the outcomes that they want. So, I, I mean, I'm I'm totally opposed to people being in prison, say, for using marijuana. Yeah. You know, uh, I just, to me, it's, it's ridiculous. I, the only reason I see to segregate anyone from society is for safety. If it's for anything other than that, I don't, uh, to me, it just doesn't make sense. It, it Not only does it not make sense, it's wrong. You know, I think it's immoral. I, I think if you look at the best examples, I've never been there, I've only read about it, but to me, the best examples of people that are doing this in a different way are in some of the Scandinavian countries where they're trying some of these practices. <clears throat> you know, they're creating prisons where people can, they, people aren't dehumanized, there's enough resource, they're getting what they need, the, the prisoners are getting what they need to change themselves, but the environment is safe, and the environment is one that, that honors their dignity as human beings. And I think that they're probably, getting their recidivism probably, rates and all those things are much lower. They're getting oh, that's, much what, that's what I was about to ask. Is there any research on what the end result of that is? 
I, there is, and I, it's been a few years since I've looked at it. So I think, but yeah, I believe from my recollection that they are, their results are quite good. <clears throat> I don't know what the, I don't even know now. It's been a couple of years since I was writing, you know, constantly about justice issues, uh, criminal justice issues. But I think that these kinds of programs, so I guess there's two pieces. Like one is the restorative piece. And the other is how are they having, you know, how are the prison experiences in this Scandinavian countries? I think that the prisons there are having better results than the prisons in the United States. So there's less recidivism. There's less violence inside the prisons themselves. I think that the other piece is that I, I view a restorative practices in general, and restorative justice particularly, it's not just something that I want to see happen in a in the context of crime. I want to see it happen in the context of conflict in general. If conflict rises to the level of something that we need to address as a community, I see there's a debate in the world of restorative justice. I think between people who view restorative justice as a process that can just kind of be grafted onto what exists, or as some kind of movement. It's actually a paradigm shift because punitive systems don't just exist in our courts. You know, they exist in schools, they exist in families and workplaces. They're everywhere. Yeah. We live in a world that is based on punitive justice, punitive reasoning. And I think so if I could kind of link back and why in my mind at least a lot of what I studied in nonviolent communication is is related to restorative process is that Marshall talks about that. Marshall talks about how this punitive thinking is getting in the way of us making these human connections, right? You could think of a restorative circle, for instance, as being we're putting our needs on the table like we were talking about earlier, and we're looking for a creative solution, and we're repairing the harm that's been done, and we're trying to figure out how to go forward together, and we're getting the people there that need to be present to make the conversation happen. We're kind of taking the system piece and we're changing it. We're changing the system to be more responsive to the actual human beings that are involved in the conflict. So I want it to happen in neighborhoods and schools and families, uh, churches, wherever, wherever people have community. So that was John Lash with a wonderfully inspiring and hopeful message. And I'm really grateful for John to give, for giving his time to us and explaining his journey and how he practiced non-violent communication in such difficult circumstances and what he still believes and practices to this day. So thanks, John, and thanks to you as well for listening. Now, if you want the show notes, you can find them at alanparry.com, where you'll also find all the back episodes of the Alan Parry podcast and my blog writings as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, then what would really help to let other people know about it too is to go onto iTunes and give us a five-star review. But until the next time, take care and I'll see you soon.